You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and today my co-host just with the most, just Paul Doroshenko, has decided to take an extended multi-week vacation, so nice that he's living his best life while his staff, like me, have to suffer and work and keep uh, the firm running, but such is life. So I have our podcast one of our podcast favorite guests. I can't say our favorite podcast guest because our listeners don't, he's not the favorite of our listeners, but he's one of the favorites of our listeners. Jan Semenov joining us today. And Jan, you'll remember, has talked uh, a bunch with Paul um, and others about um, breath testing and the pandemic and COVID-19 and cleaning the devices and health and safety and breath testing during a viral pandemic. Jan has also joined us to talk about ketosis and the ketogenic diet and how that can impact breath testing. And today, we're taking a bit of a shift away from those things to talk about some of the history of how breath and alcohol testing works and the way in which you could have breath and alcohol testing impacted uh, in a negative way in a criminal case based on your gender. So the role that gender and age play and whether or not your biological sex that you were born with and your gender can put you in a position where you'd be discriminated against. So really important listening for people who are trans who are facing impaired driving charges because this is an issue that in in many respects negatively impacts trans people and discriminates against trans people in the way that the science and the law don't really coalesce. So Jan is going to be joining us to talk about that. Welcome back to the podcast, Jan. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Well, I'm happy you could join me. I, I heard you got too much sun yesterday, so I'll, I'll you know, try and go easy on you. <laughs> it's uh, 38 degrees in Saskatoon yesterday and today with the humidity. That's insane. That's just, that's, yeah. that's not acceptable. But that's okay. There's no such thing as global warming. Are you joking? Yes. Because oh. <laughs> you're a man of science. No, well, that was my facetious voice. Okay. Um, anyway, so I've uh, wanted you to talk about um, gender and sex because... I texted you the other day um, as I was, you know, sitting in my house musing about breath testing, as you and I are often want to do. Right. And I thought, you know, what what happens if, like, a trans person takes a breath test and they want to do a calculation of their blood alcohol level to try and question the reading? Like, do you use a calculation for men or a calculation <laughs> for women? And hence our discussion. <laughs> okay, so... The, the short answer is nobody knows. Okay. The long answer is certainly far more complicated than that. So let's take a look at kind of historically how the uh, the charts were based. And, and basically what we had originally was a series of charts that were done 
by the United States Department of Transport that took a look at the number of standard drinks for men and the number of standard drinks for women, and they based um, blood alcohol concentrations on your body weight and how much you had to drink, right? Mm -hmm. It's pretty straightforward so far. The problem is, is that what they basically did is use body mass index. And so if we've got two people, one um, uh, gender assigned at birth female and the other gender assigned at birth male, and they both weigh, say, 160 pounds, mm -hmm. um, a standard drink for 160-pound man is going to give an equivalent of about 23 milligrams of blood alcohol concentration. And for the 160-pound female is going to give a difference about about 0 0.029 or 29 milligrams, so about, what, 25% more mm -hmm. for one standard drink for two people based on gender differences. Now, there's a couple of issues. First of all, um, I'm going to, I haven't really looked at that particular number, and I'm, so I'm going to go kind of off the top of my head here, but uh, there was, a, there was, the Canada Health Guidelines saying that body uh, fat percentages um, for women and for men are different in terms of what is considered acceptably healthy. And I, I, again, I'm going by my memory here. It's something like uh, 9 to 11% for males and like 13 to 15% for females would be considered an appropriate amount of fat to have in your system. Right. So that sounds about if right. you've got... Yeah, so if you've got a person, let's say, we'll go back to a 160-pound person, you know, obviously the, the, the guy is going to have with, say, you know, 10% body mass or, of fat, um, less fat than the, the comparable female-weighted uh, mm -hmm. person would have. Now, why that's important is that alcohol is only dissolvable in watery tissues. It can't be dissolved in fatty tissues. So if you have two people, again, one gender assigned male, one gender assigned female, same body mass, and they both consume the same amount of alcohol, the male is going to have a larger percentage of water in their body that that alcohol can dissolve into. The female would have a smaller percentage of water in the body because the body fat is higher, and therefore the alcohol is reflected in having these differences in the reading. Like I say, 23 milligrams for a man, uh, 29 milligrams for a woman. And it's because um, the, 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 the body fat concentration is just different. Right. Now, that makes sense when you think about it in terms of what we know. The, the other issue is, and it's a secondary issue, is that there is uh, a series of enzymes in the human body called ADH enzyme or alcohol dehydrogenase enzymes. And those ADH enzymes are responsible for metabolizing the alcohol, specifically the ethanol that we consume when we're drinking our social beverages, okay? And there are six to nine different ADH enzymes available. And lo and behold, men have got nine of the more efficacious ones and females have got six of the less efficacious ones. So the ability, the ability for uh, you know two humans to metabolize the alcohol is based 
uh, on those ADH enzymes. And, and they're also um, genetically based and racially based um, uh, people from people with, with, with long histories. And I'm talking about like a, a group of people now with long histories of alcohol consumption. Like, let, let me put it specifically. My mom is Scottish. <laughs> My dad is Russian. Okay. Long I histories can, of alcohol consumption there. <laughs> I can I can metabolize with the best of them. Right. If you take a look at, say, uh, North American Aboriginal peoples, uh, Inuit, um, people in, in many of the Pacific Rim nations, they had no experience with alcohol because it wasn't really a part of their, their social structure, right? Right. Well, we sometimes hear about this... this colloquial term Asian flush that has to do right. with that same enzyme right that's correct yeah and in fact when the enzyme is is uh, activated if you will with an Asian person um, it actually produces kind of a, a toxic byproduct which creates that flush right right so and and we see that uh, and it reflected also in their elimination rates like uh, the average the average person is going to eliminate around 17 to 18 milligrams of alcohol per hour. Um, I was, I'll tell you an interesting story. About 15 years ago, I was doing um, an elimination study for a court case. Mm-hmm. The defense, the defense uh, lawyer had retained me to actually, you know, feed the guy under controlled circumstances the exact same alcohol that they could um, they could pin him down for having drank on the, the day that the accident occurred. And I was to then take, uh, you know, blood alcohol. We did blood draws and correlated them with breath alcohol measurements. Mm-hmm. And I was able to track this guy and hit, he, he, he had an elimination of alcohol. He was only eliminating at around seven milligrams per hour. Wow. As, a, as opposed to like the 17 milligrams per hour, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and and I eliminate, just so you know, I, I eliminated 18 milligrams per hour, and I'm very happy to tell you that because I've been tracking that for 15 years. So my, you know, my alcohol consumption is not becoming a social problem because my elimination rate has, has stayed Staying the same. Consistent. And for people that, yeah, people that are, you know, chronic alcoholics, their elimination rate rises as their ability to metabolize. The body says, oh, I know what this stuff is. I'm going to try to get rid of it now. So anyway, here I'm testing this guy in Edmonton, and um and I said, listen, uh, your alcohol elimination rate is, is really low. Like, tell me a little bit about your family history. And it turned out he was um, uh, native to South America in a particular area where there was no alcohol consumption whatsoever until about 200 years ago. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, like, in terms of their being able to genetically manipulate um they, 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 his particular group of people can't metabolize the alcohol. Um, my forebears have been drinking scotch and vodka for 5,000 years. <laughs> we can, we can get rid of this, uh, poison real quickly. Right. So right. let's go back to your original question. Now we've got the issue of uh, a transgender person or a person in transition. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to get hormone replacement therapy to, assist obviously in that transition or reassignment of gender and during that time there have been no studies that have ever said okay it's going to change um your your adh levels and we don't know if all of a sudden you know okay 
I was assigned uh, male at birth. I decided I want, I'm actually female and I'm going to go through the HRT therapy to reassign my gender. Does that now mean that my ADH enzymes are going to be altered? Right. And are you, are you using the calculation for a female body right. or a male body? Right, exactly. And I guess the big thing is we would have to start off by saying, how has my body mass index changed? Um, if I become female, now does my body does my body fat percentage change because of the hormone replacement therapy right or and and so that it raises a question of a big unknown right mm -hmm. and so what i would probably do is i would do the calculations based on assigned gender at birth and say that the numbers are somewhere in this ballpark but we just we just simply don't know it would be very interesting and i suppose it would be a fairly simple study to do Let's just say we had uh, 20 people who were transitioning right now, and before they transitioned, um, again, we go in and we could do the, the alcohol elimination study and, and you know, dose them and find out what their blood alcohol concentration is and what their elimination rate is. Then they go through the, you know, the gender transition and, say, three years later, we test them again, and we see that, you know, if the, we, would, we would be able to then find out on average if the, um, the numbers stay the same. Right? or if they change. Uh, it would be an interesting study. I don't know how instructive it would end up being, but it would be an interesting study nonetheless. But it could become critical, because if you have somebody where, you know, the, now the criminal code, as you know, has been amended to sort of read back at a certain mm -hmm. rate for all people if the samples are taken outside two hours, that might actually be detrimental to an accused, depending on their assigned gender at birth, depending on the impacts of hormone replacement therapy, depending on their body mass index, all these factors are going to go into whether that's actually something that should be used for trans people. Oh, yeah, yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. And, and realistically, when you've got the, uh, the retrograde extrapolations, those calculations are called, to look back at a person's blood alcohol concentration, theoretical, concentration at a specific point in time and, and they base those calculations on a whole bunch of assumptions and 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 you know I'm a, I'm a 57 year old male who's starting to hit the higher end of my body mass index uh, too many gin and tonics when I fly and and <laughs> not you know, anymore and, yeah not anymore yeah um, and and you know I, if I would compare let's let, you know compare me to you you and I are different different assigned genders, we have um, different body mass indexes, we have different sizes, and we have different alcohol consumption patterns. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, I know a little bit about you and you know a little bit about me, but when the criminalist at the RCMP crime lab or whoever is making those kind of calculations, they don't care. They use the, the standard assumptions, and the assumptions are based on things like I'm going to absorb alcohol at a certain rate. I'm going to peak my alcohol consumption. Uh, my blood alcohol concentration is going to peak about 30 minutes after that. I'm going to eliminate alcohol at a specific rate that's that's equivalent for all people. Uh, and, and these assumptions just go on and on and on. And and it's it's actually very interesting when we go into court and we're talking about retrograde calculations. And, you know, you get the, the state expert pinned down and they're like, no, it happens this way. And this is, these are the assumptions that we make. And this is, everything works, you know, for the benefit of the accused. 
And it's, it's simply not the case because when we go back and take a look at each one of those assumptions, there's a wide range of variables for absorption rate, elimination rate, time to peak plateau, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And unless those things are taken into account, um, you know, I've, I've seen the cases, particularly in California, where they have to do a retrograde at each, each breath test case. They have a forensic criminalist from a state lab come in and say what he would have been at the time of driving or she would have been at the time of driving. And they make all these assumptions. Now we start picking these assumptions apart and say, well, wait, you know, this number could be this and it could be this. And there's a really wide range of, of discrepancies here. I mean, even when Dr. Dubowski did his kind of seminal work back in, uh, in the early, late 70s, early 80s on elimination rates, he has, a, he has a really wide elimination rate, anywhere from 13 to 39 milligrams per hour. And that was based on, you know, uh, 50 different or 40 different uh, individuals who were all healthy. Yeah, and, that's and, not a very big sample size if you consider what a scientific yeah. study should have. They, well, exactly. And, and so they, they, they just use these kind of little piecemeal studies and, and, and set those up as the numbers. When if, I recall fact, correctly, if I recall correctly, all those study subjects were also white males. And we know that there is a, and you know, uh, I hate to do this, but there is there is a racial context to the ADH enzymes, and and you know, um, again, <laughs> white male here, Scottish Russian heritage. I got I got the good enzymes. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't make that claim about about everybody, so they're going to have you know other people of different races different ethnic backgrounds, different ethnicities are going to have different elimination rates that are not taken into account on those studies. So, you know, the whole, the whole thing about doing any of those calculations, you, you can throw, the, you know, something into the monkey works by saying, well, okay, my, my client is transgendered, never been studied. You could also say my client is black. <laughs> also never been studied. Yeah, also never been studied. Or, or my client is female. Now, what, what do you say to this? Like, I mean, I can see, I guess, if you're using assigned gender at birth and you're born male, then you're probably going to be better off, regardless of whether the hormone replacement therapy affects you, because um, the, the results are going to be more in line with the higher elimination rate, the lower blood alcohol level based on consumption, but what if your assigned gender at birth is female and you, or sorry, is it, yeah, what if your assigned gender at birth is female and they're using that even though you've transitioned to, to male? Like, don't you think this should be studied? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that anytime, anytime a scientist is going into a court and ostensibly making a, a blanket statement saying, you know, at minimum he would have been, you know, 085 at the time of driving, um, you know, would have been 90 milligrams at the time of driving. Anytime they make a blanket statement like that, then their assumptions should be challenged. And the only way to, and, and this is this speaks to the reliability of the testimony and the reliability of the calculations that are being performed. Mm-hmm. It is the responsibility of the Crown to establish the reliability of those things. Right. And they simply don't. They don't do that. They again, they use these assumptions that were made sometimes twenty and thirty years ago, and and that's it. That's that's the way it works. And if you take a look at breath testing overall, 
you know, this has been my this has been my big concern about breath testing in in, in its entirety. Um, a lot of the numbers that are used uh, were decided by government committee in like 1954, and the science has evolved and changed the uh, the precision, the accuracy, and reliability. The measurements that we can do now are a lot different than what was happening in the in the 1950s, and yet the the technology has not really advanced and we still use those same kind of calculations for, for instance the partition ratio this mm-hmm. is there's a difference in partition ratio between males and females and it was kind of established as as 2100 in 1954 and, and it was was actually decided by a government committee in 1954 and uh, that's been the numbers that have been used ever since and we know that those partition coefficients, that, that difference of alcohol that's dissolved in the breast versus alcohol that's dissolved in the blood, um, varies widely from pe- person to person. But yet we still use those same numbers. Now, would it be possible for a person who is receiving hormone replacement therapy um, to develop enzymes that weren't there before? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> because it's it's not just people who are transitioning that receive hormone replacement therapy, right? You get you see a lot of women going through menopause that receive you know different types of hormone therapies, um, men dealing with prostate cancers and testicular cancer, and so nobody's ever studied this, even though these drugs are being used to treat all sorts of people and to help people become who they really are. What 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 is the reluctance of the scientific community to continue to study alcohol in the human body? I I don't think there's a reluctance in the scientific community. Um, I think there's a reluctance in the forensic scientific community because they have in the status quo something that works very well for them. Right. And I, and I don't I don't mean to ascribe some kind of conspiracy theorist label on this. It's just that. They, they kind of disregard any of these numbers. Um, I, w- I was talking to, we were working on a study with, um, uh, uh, a proposed study basically with a, a colleague of mine who is a pharmacologist. And uh, uh, we were looking at the numbers and everything like that. And then it became like, okay, so why are we bothering? Because we're never going to be able to get this published. I mean, we might be able to get it published in, in in a, in a medical journal, but it's never going to happen in a forensic scientific journal. And and you know, again talking to another colleague, and, and he had he had been submitting, and the, and the man has a PhD in, in respiratory physiology and is is quite um, uh, well regarded in the in the in the respiratory medicine community, and he was submitting papers on you know the variables again and blood-to-breath ratios and stuff like that could not get these things published wow. in the forensic journals because, you know, they're con- kind of controlled by the government. Well, it is... It's in Canada, they're controlled by the Alcohol Test Committee. I was going to say, there's um, the Canadian Society of Forensic Sciences. They have the Alcohol Test Committee, but that's basically just a arm of government. Ex- exactly, yeah. So, I mean, I hate to sort of deviate from the topic, but would you say that the forensic scientist community dealing specifically with alcohol is almost no longer a scientific community 
and instead a potentially a lobby group or an enforcement community? Um, you might not want to go that far. I, <laughs> I'll yeah, say I, it. <laughs> I don't know if I can really go that far. I, I think I can say that when... Um, okay, let me, let me tell you another story, and this will kind of sum up my position on it. I was testifying one time in Toronto mm -hmm. for a mutual friend of ours. And uh, the uh, person from the Center for Forensic Sciences uh, gave rebuttal testimony to me and explained to the court how I was totally wrong. And I actually asked the lawyer to put me up to do surrebuttal. Mm -hmm. And I explained, no, I was right, and here's why. Now that you've raised these issues, let me explain this in no uncertain terms. And we went on and on and on. Um, and then we, the, the closing arguments were made. The judge was gonna, going to take everything under advisement and issue a, a written decision at a later date. Mm -hmm. we, went off to, we went off to lunch at the end of the trial. And as I was sitting there, I get an email from the guy from the CFS, the Center for Forensic Science, saying, I just got back to the office and I took a look and you were right and I was wrong. You, you, you're right. And wow. so I, you know, I've gotten in contact with the Crown Prosecutor to say, no, in fact, I just did some more research and Mr. Semenov is right. And didn't matter because <laughs> I was found guilty anyhow by the trial judge. What? Um, but you were yeah. right. Shouldn't there be an acquittal no. or a stay? Yeah, there, there should be. There, well, there should have at least been a, you know, an appeal done on it. But the judge didn't want to hear that either. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, you've, so you've got you've got a lot of pushback, I think, from government agencies and you know people from the CFS and stuff like that who don't who don't really want to take a look at. It. I, I'll tell you something. Here's a really interesting one. Now this is this is now I'm deviating off the topic. But I I was doing um, uh, a paper for uh, a lawyer who had presented to me um, a whole list of chemicals that his client had been exposed to. And he wondered if any of these chemicals could affect an infrared breath alcohol testing device. And I took a look at the, the chemicals. I said, yeah, I think they can. And as I was doing some research, I came across um, a paper called The Partition Coefficients of Some Acetate Esters and Alcohol, Water, Blood, Olive Oil, and Rat Tissues. It sounds like it's like, you know, totally esoteric and doesn't really have anything to do with it, but it comes from the Journal of Occupational Medicine and Env Occupational Environmental Medicine. Mm -hmm. And in this paper, on one of the pages, they've got a chart, and it takes a look at the partition coefficients of these alcohols in water mm -hmm. or in human blood. And they just list alcohol and water. The partition coefficient for ethyl alcohol is 2140 to 1. And that kind of comes to our 2100 to 1 that, that, that is have widely accepted in, in science, right? Mm -hmm. And I look over at the chart for the human blood to air partition coefficient. They list in this paper as 1440 to 1. Oh, that's a big difference. That's a huge difference. And... So I've got um, uh, an email into uh, Dr. A.W. Jones. We, we converse on, on uh, numerous things, and I've, I've sent this paper off to him for his review, and I haven't heard anything back. But, I mean, 
in this Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, they are basically saying that the partition coefficient of alcohol in human blood is 1440 to 1. Alcohol in water is 2140 to 1. Now, we know that they have been studying, they had, and there was always the, the position of the RCMP and the Alcohol Test Committee and the Center for Forensic Sciences that 2100 to 1 is the ratio that we use here in Canada, and it was based on the fact that, um, you know... 40 uh, white the, dudes the, had it. Well, no, it wasn't done like that. It was done based on the fact that the partition coefficient was established between water and alcohol in the chemistry labs. Right. But listen... Blood is mostly water, they said. Blood is, you know, 98%, 96% water, so we can use that same number. Yeah, and 4% well, I mean, plasma and serum and all sorts of yeah. crap that gets into your body. <laughs> but but if the actual partition coefficient is 1440 to 1, that means the entire basis of breath alcohol testing that's been done in North America and indeed around the world is wrong. And that the majority of people who've been convicted of over 80 offenses were actually innocent. Were actually under 0.8. So, you know, realistically, I'd, I'd be really interested in Dr. Jones's opinion on this to find out if these variables are, in fact, more than an esoteric, scientific, you know, kind of... Is this a real-world thing, or is this purely a, a lab sort of thing? So let but, me ask. But realistically, those numbers are those those numbers are alarming. So let me ask your opinion then. Do you think that our laws that we you know use across North America, the .08 standard, do you think that those are potentially inherently sexist and racist? Uh, inherently sexist and racist. Well, again. We know that the studies that were done used healthy volunteers, um, and have been and have been using healthy volunteers of a particular uh, uh, body type and age for years. Even the original uh, studies that were done by um, early researchers in in, in Sweden, um, they were using. A, a wide variety of Swedish university students as test subjects, and this was like in the 1920s. And I and I, <laughs> so you've got a group of you know Swedish university students who are all in their early 20s in the 1920s, 100 years ago, mm -hmm. before the ages of fast food and um, uh, you know bad healthy lifestyle choices that we have 100 years later. And they're still using those numbers in the in the Widmark studies they were done, which um, is where we got the Widmark formula. <laughs> exactly. So, so Widmark uses twenty men and ten women to come up with his Widmark formula, and they are all Swedish university students in in 1920. Right. Now, if they've got the same kind of body mass index and lifestyle and you know, fat content and stuff <laughs> like that, and they're all white Swedish people, I mean, you know. Probably not a black guy in the group. And probably all incredible, like, wealthy, and so have been eating, you know, good food, not just eating to keep a lean body, yeah, but eating, and, eating... Yeah, and like, you know, like, Ikea meatballs and gefilte fish as opposed to Big Mac, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so tell me that that is representative of, of, you know, who and what we are. So are they inherently racist and sexist? 
Yeah, I guess yeah, from a scientific point of view, they, they certainly should be considered. Right. But again, you know, we're making all these silly assumptions in alcohol testing and Whitmark calculations and retrograde calculations and stuff like that. And, and none of these um, assumptions really are, are valid. They have to be look at, looked at on a case-by-case basis. So is your client trans? Yeah. And is that going to create an issue? Absolutely. But we don't know what the issue is going to be. And nobody's and litigated I, it or nobody's studied it. Right. And, and you and I have had this conversation in person before, and I made the comment that more and more it is my belief that it is now a reverse onus defense. The DOI is a reverse onus. You have to basically prove why your client wasn't driving drunk at the time. And I know that's not the way the law reads, and I know that's not the way the law works. But we both know that going into court, that this is more and more the case, um, particularly when I'm testifying in the United States, is that you have to you have to you know confront all these um, these kind of peremptory beliefs that are done without challenge. And start picking holes on those, and then and then turn around and create your case to say, but my client is different because and because of those differences, this is how the breast reading was affected, or my client was affected. Mm-hmm. And you're you're now starting, like I say, it's a reverse onus. You have to prove that why your client was not guilty, and that's not the way the law is really supposed to work. Yeah, okay. climb off my soapbox now, right now. <laughs> well, that is good to know thank you for all of that insight i think my next step is going to be trying to find a trans rights lawyer to talk about this from the legal perspective well i um i I came out and visited you with my research assistant in tow to look at the drager 5000 and i would be more than willing to come out and take a look and we could do some again calculations and some studies on people before during and after transitioning and we could easily get some numbers it would require some work but it's not hard to do not really hard to do at all but the issue is getting um a, a large enough sample populace that you can that you can make some some claims about the the data that you've got and then of course you know getting it, it peer-reviewed and everything like that okay hey uh I'd like to talk to you, maybe not today, but on another occasion, we need to talk about coronavirus and COVID-19 and the long-term effects of how surviving that virus is going to affect your client. And I'd also like to talk at another point in time about coronavirus and disease transmission and breath testing. And those are really important topics that I think we should... uh, we should have a podcast for in the, in the next little while. Absolutely. I'm, invite, I'm inviting myself back. I'm, I'm, I kind of <laughs> that in. I'm welcoming you back anytime, Jan. You're always fascinating. You're an excellent guest. Well, thank you so much. Thank you again to Jan Semenoff for joining us on the Driving Law Podcast to share his insight about the real gap in scientific testing, not just for people who are in the process of transitioning or receiving hormone replacement therapy, but also the real gap in testing um, cross-culturally and across genders. We really need to do more in the field of breath alcohol testing to ensure that we're not convicting innocent people on the basis of 
science that only applies to a small subset of the population. And um, as a, a woman and an Indigenous person, I can say that it makes me more nervous to go out and use the road, knowing that the science that's being applied to my body is, we know, at least in part, not specific to my body and is also likely not specific to my body in other ways, and yet nobody in our forensic community is investing the resources into determining how these variations between genders and uh, biological sex and trans people, uh, how all of that impacts breath testing. And it would be, uh, I think, excellent to know more about that. Um, so scientists, if you're listening, get the fuck on that. All right. Now it is time for my favorite portion of the podcast, although I don't get the benefit of sharing this story with my co-hostess. Um, instead, I get to share it all with you. And that's the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. So this week, we have the case of a Toronto man... Uh, who has been charged with impaired driving and mischief after a collision on a golf cart at a golf course. Yeah, so he's um, he's in Port Hope, Ontario, and I don't know where the heck that is, but uh, apparently they were called to the golf club because he collided uh, with another golf cart while driving it, um, that he was allegedly impaired by alcohol, um, and, uh, charged with a blood alcohol concentration of over 80, plus two counts of mischief, and released on a promise to appear. So very <laughs> interesting. We see a lot of cases involving people driving golf carts and getting impaired driving cases, but the vast majority of time, there are people who are taking their golf courts down the road, um, because they're not thinking clearly or for whatever reason reason. They're not people who are driving their golf carts because they are um, uh, impaired on the golf course and get in an accident on the golf course. Very unusual to see that type of a situation. So, Mr. Ridiculous Driver, if you are a person who likes to golf and likes to have a couple drinks while golfing, remember that you do need to have a sober golf cart driver. A golf cart is still a motor vehicle. If a pool noodle can be a motor vehicle, then so can a golf cart. A golf cart is still a motor vehicle. The blood alcohol concentration law still applies. And even though you're not on the road, the law still applies because there's a risk to the public. So don't drive a golf cart drunk. Seems simple enough. Well, that's our podcast. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law. If you need to reach us, you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889. If you're a lawyer looking to retain the services of Jan Semenov to assist you or your client in a case, give me a call. I'll pass on Jan's information. He's also the editor and uh, publisher of Counterpoint Journal. Uh, the Counterpoint Journal of Forensic Sciences can be subscribed to online. I highly recommend recommend it. Lots of fascinating and interesting information. And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.